The scripture for today's teaching is sections of 1 Samuel chapters 18 through 20, starting with chapter 18, 1 through 5. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him. And he gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. The next section is from chapter 20, 13 through 17 and verses 41 and 42. But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he's been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him. For he loved him as he loved his own soul. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another. David weeping the most. And then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. This is the word of God to us. Amen. You guys can grab a seat. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. It's really good to be with you guys. My name is Josh Curry. I'm one of the pastors here at Frontline. Uh, My wife and I, who's sitting right over here, we planted Frontline Church downtown in 2005. And now my role is to serve all of our congregations and develop leaders and do some preaching and teaching. So I'm really stoked to be here, excited about our text. We're walking through the life of King David. And today we get to talk about something that I think is really, really beautiful and timely. So uh, if you guys would go with me in prayer, and here's the funny thing, man, like even in this moment, we're sort of wired in this part of the world to let this time in God's word and this time together just be another ritual. And rituals aren't bad. Like it's actually good to build habits of formation. But the thing that can be empty is the expectation for God to actually be here and to move. So if you would pray with me, let's ask God to do something that would last in us. Let's ask him to do something eternal. The thing that's crazy is, man, like as many needs as there are in this room, God sees them all, he's aware of them, and he's working in the midst of your needs. So, Father, thank you for my friends. I love this church. 
God, I'm so thankful for Andrew and Sean and Aaron and all the pastors and leaders. Thank you for these men and women. Thank you for the community groups where gospel life is happening between Sundays. Lord, thank you for the way that they gather with faith and with hope to confess sin, to receive grace. Lord, I pray today as we open up the word that you would form us and encourage us. I pray that you would raise our expectancy to a place that's befitting those that serve a living Jesus. Um, Lord, forgive us for the ways that we just come to you as if you don't really hear our prayers. Lord, we love you. We need you. Meet us. We pray these things in and through you, Jesus. You're our hope now and in death. We pray all these things. And everybody said, amen. amen. All right, if you got a Bible, start finding 1 Samuel chapter 18. We're going to be in 18 through 20. Uh, if you're new to the Bible, that's in the Old Testament. So you can start to the left and turn right and you'll hit it. Let me say a couple of things as we kick this thing off. Would it freak you out if I told you that I knew exactly how long you would live? Would that weird you out? Would this? I heard a yes. Yes, it would be creepy. I would find a different church if that was your spiritual gift. Like, excuse me, sir, in the back. Like, that sounds really weird, and that sounds kind of mystical and creepy, but here's the reality. Like, I actually do know how long we're all going to live, because Scripture is really clear that every single person in this room is an immortal image bearer of the Most High God. Which means, quite simply, it's true that there's a moment where your body's going to die, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, your body has a shelf life. But here's the reality, the thing that separates us from the animals, the thing that makes human beings so profoundly mysterious and fascinating and hard to understand is that God has implanted into you immortality and the end of every single human being that you meet is an eternal end. Meaning like, you are actually going to outlast the sun, the moon, and the stars. In comparison to your life, in comparison to your life, which may feel really fragile and really small, in comparison to your life, the Rocky Mountains are going to be a flash in the pan here and gone. You are made to live forever. And the reality is that all people in this room and all people on this planet as immortal image bearers of God are being shaped in this life to the end of either enjoying God and his people in relationship for all time or being shaped to the end of getting the answer to our heart's desire, which is separation from God. And in light of that, in light of that reality, in light of the sobriety of that, that though your earthly life may be 70, 80 years, maybe shorter, it is like smoke that's here and gone. But in light of your eternal life, it highlights what's really dangerous in this world. And it's true, we have fragile bodies and we're always under threat by this world. And we should be aware of that. Like, yes, you should exercise. You should suck down the occasional glass of wheat, like wheatgrass, wheat juice. You should do that. It's bad for your body. I mean, it's good for your body, bad for your taste buds. Tofu, do that if you feel like it. Do stuff that's healthy. Be wise. But here's the crazy thing, man. Whatever it is that ultimately takes you out, be it something that's really common or be it something really rare, like lightning, or I'm probably going to go out choking on a chicken bone. Whatever it is that ultimately gets you, here's what you got to get. The thing that's really dangerous in this world is not the stuff that's going to happen to your body. It's not. 
The dangers around you that are the most eternal dangers are the ways in which in this very moment and around the clock all the time, there are forces at work that want to dehumanize your soul that want to flatten your soul, that want to numb out your soul, that want your soul to shrink and your soul to be prepared for an eternal shrinkage in separation from God. You have a soul that's gonna last forever. And the thing that's so amazing, the thing that's so amazing about the work of Jesus is yes, because of his resurrection, he is gonna redeem your bodies. That's part of the gospel. Because Jesus is alive physically, your body is going to be raised anew one day. And that's great news that you're going to have a body that won't get sick, it won't age, it won't die. That's part of our hope in Jesus. But get this, the work of Jesus in this life, before you see him face to face, is a deep renovation of your soul to make you more human to make you more alive, to shape the affections of your innermost being, to create in you the capacity to enjoy a life of eternal relationship with God and with people. Now, with that in mind, and the true danger of this world in our ideas and our affections and principalities and powers and philosophies, this world that's waging war against your soul, with that in mind, the life of David in chapter 18 of 1 Samuel is going to take what feels like a really dark turn. See, up to now in the life of David, if you've been walking through this story with us, up to now, David's like a hot stock. Like he's just rising. He's got the Midas touch. Everything David touches turns to gold. As a young man, as a shepherd, the prophet of God comes and anoints him with oil. David's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's given this beautiful calling. David goes to battle with Goliath. God gives him victory. David has favor with the king, favor with the court of the king, favor with the armies of the king. David's probably in his late teens or early 20s. And this story is going to tell us that all of the women of Israel are singing top 40 pop songs about how amazing David is. Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his ten thousands. Like that's heady stuff for a young dude, is it not? And in the midst of all of that success and all of that blessing, it looks like David's life is going to continue to rise, that he's just a step away from the throne, that his life is going to be marked with unceasing success. And then chapter 18 hits. And the raging of the world, the vengeance of Saul, the schemes and traps that are laid for David, the suffering and pain David's about to endure. The crucible of suffering is going to come down on David and instead of being one step away from the throne, the king who did favor him is now gonna throw spears at him and trap him and eventually drive him away from his own homelands into the wilderness as a refugee and fugitive. And the point of saying that it's like if ever there was a person in the human story, if ever there was a man like you and me that should have had a diminishing in his soul because of his life, it was David. We would expect David to become less prayerful and more anxious because the king's trying to kill him. We would expect David to become less open and generous, more cynical and bitter. 
You would expect David to fight fire with fire and start to become more like Saul as Saul presses against David with all the might of the armies of Israel. And yet, listen, what happens in this story is really profound. God does a deepening, a preserving, a humanizing work in David that actually in the midst of his circumstances gives David a depth and a beauty and a prayerfulness and a capacity for relationship that's unmatched by any person in the Old Testament and points to Jesus. What I want you to get today is that he does that work through a miracle that you're going to be tempted to miss. If you've read these chapters, getting ready for today, hope you have chapters 18 through 20, you may be thinking, well, there's no miracles here. There's no healings, right? There's no words and tongues. There's no angelic visitations. There's no prophecy. Nobody's raised from the dead. This is really ordinary stuff. But under our noses, God himself is working about this amazing miracle of preservation and grace to expand David's soul, his soul, and he's doing it through the miracle of spiritual friendship. He's doing something in David's life that you and me desperately need. If we're going to be preserved in this world that wants to rage against your soul, if we're going to become deeper and more beautiful internally instead of more bitter, more cynical, less forgiving, we too need the gift of God working the miracle of spiritual friendship in us. Now, in our cultural moment, friendship seems like the last thing you would label a miracle. Like, for many of us, we hear friendship and you have images in your head of like digital image management collecting online friends, or you may hear the word friendship and you may just think about something that you did experience when you were in high school or college that you don't have time for right now, right? In fact, in our cultural moment, more liberal leaning theologians have no grid for the kind of relationship that's described here where two men are vulnerable and love each other in the way that David and Jonathan love each other. They have no grid for that being friendship. So they have to call it sexual romantic love. And yet, listen, it's in this soul-level friendship that you see some of the deepest workings of Jesus and some of the fruit of the gospel and what Christ wants to offer you as a miracle for your own soul. So what I want to do today is give you three things from this story. Three things, we'll talk about it. In the words of St. Augustine, who wrote this, The house of my soul is too small to receive thee. Let it be enlarged by thee. It is in ruins Do thou repair it. We need the work of spiritual friendship to enlarge and repair our souls. So here we go. Three things. Number one, first of all, spiritual friendship is soul friendship. It's soul friendship. Look at chapter 18, verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Like what is happening there? This is really weird. This is mysterious. This is below the line stuff that you can't see. What does it mean to have your soul knit to someone? And what does it mean to not only recognize the reality and eternality of your soul, but to actually love a person like you love your own soul? And I think there's a couple of things that are happening here. Like In our particular culture, most of our friendships are based on the external components of our identity. 
And those external components are important. They're a part of who you are. Your gender is a part of your identity, right? Your ethnicity, your culture is a part of your identity. Your job is a part of your identity. Your height is a part of your identity. Those are all external components that are part of who you are. But listen, in this story, we get a glimpse of a deeper level of friendship than just relating to each other based on shared affinity or stage of life or activities that we enjoy to do for recreation. What's happening here is two things. Jonathan is seeing David after the spirit. And in seeing David after the spirit, he's getting a sense of the heart of God for David that leads him to love David in a really rare, beautiful, and unique way. So listen, if Jonathan only saw David after the flesh, after externals, he would have been tempted to look down on David as subordinate. Jonathan is the son of the king. Jonathan, it seems, is in, is in line to become the next king of Israel after Saul dies. David's not from an important family, Jonathan is. David's not particularly wealthy. Jonathan is. Jonathan could look at David and label him and choose in that labeling to either relate to him based on the surface or ignore him based on the surface. But instead, somehow, Jonathan has this sense when he looks at David of the heart of God for David. Jonathan loves David Because Jonathan somehow is tapped into the love of God for David. God chose David. God loved David. And based on that love, Jonathan's soul enlarges and expands. And he offers love that is rare and beautiful to his brother based on the love of God. I just want to say, man, like we've got so many challenges in our culture to build deeper relationship. So many challenges. We're busy. We're stressed out. We're polarized. In this room, there's Republicans, there's Democrats, there's elderly people, there's young people, there's people that are blue collar, people that are white collar. And one of the things we need as the church is to be a witness to the world that the basis of our communion The basis of our friendship, our love for each other, our care for one another is not all of the external stuff that the world measures by, but the basis of our friendship is that we see each other after the spirit and not the flesh. In the early church, Christians were from every walk of life. There were wealthy Romans and there were Romans that were slaves. There were men, there were women, there were Gentiles, there were Jews. There were people that in no Roman society would have loved each other or done life together who were breaking bread and sharing the common cup of Jesus in love for each other. And the Romans saw it and had to ask questions about the Jesus who could build that kind of friendship. Here's what I want you to get, man, Mike. If you got one taste of a tenth of the heart of Father God for the person sitting next to you, you would love them as you love your own soul. If you could get a fresh sense of the infinite price that God paid to make that person his heir, his friend, his son, his daughter, then it would be impossible for you to write that person off based on minor disagreements and externals and lacking shared common interest. Spiritual friendship is about seeing each other after the spirit and not the flesh. 
Second thing about spiritual friendship here is that it's also about serving one another into God's desired end. Now, here's what's crazy. Somehow, Jonathan knows, and we don't know how he knows, if somebody told him, maybe the prophet told him, maybe God told him, maybe he just has a hunch as he watches David's life and formation and growth. But somehow, Jonathan knows that God has called David to be the future king of Israel. And Jonathan's friendship with David, even the offering of his sword and his armor and his belt, is about partnering with God in helping David grow and develop into the calling of God. This is a really big deal. Now, it's great to have people that you like to do fun stuff with. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with affinity-based friendships. Like, if you like to bow hunt, I like to bow hunt, we can hang out. But here's the thing that's crazy about gospel community. Gospel community is not first and foremost entertainment or recreation. Gospel community is recognizing, hey, my friend, the living God has a calling on your life that is eternal. And it's my job as your brother, as your friend, to say yes to the plan and will of God to make you look like Jesus and to form you over the long haul to be a royal heir of the promises of Christ. C.S. Lewis describes how crazy this is in his essay, The Weight of Glory. He writes, it may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It's hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it and the backs of the proud will be broken. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature, which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as now you only meet, if at all, in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It's with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. All friendship, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. Spiritual friendship is about saying yes to the calling of God on the people around you and yielding your time and your gifts and your encouragement and your prayers and your love itself to be a means to the end that God desires. And listen, get, get, get this, like hear me, like I would have walked away from Jesus and from my calling at least a dozen times in my life if it wasn't for the depth of spiritual friendship God's given me. There's been times where my shame was so loud, my sin's been so loud, my discouragement's been so loud, depression's been so loud. There's been times where the weight of this world felt so crushing that I just wanted to go and climb the fence to where the grass is greener on the other side to give in to my doubt, to give in to my despair, to find an easier path, to get off the narrow road and walk the wide road. And again and again and again, God has rescued me through friends. And it's true, we believe as a church, the Bible teaches once saved, always saved. You can't be born again and then unborn again. 
But God uses means to preserve his children for the great day when we see Jesus. And listen, one of the means of preservation he uses is real deep spiritual friendship where you have friends that say, hey man, I need to remind you right now of who you are. I need to remind you right now of the gospel. I actually need to sit you down and say, no man, you can't walk away from your wife because of Jesus. You can't give up on the things that God cares about. You can't pretend that you don't know what you know. Spiritual friendship is about seeing each other after the lens of the spirit, not the flesh. And it's about partnering with God to shape human beings to be who God's called them to be. Now, all that sounds great. That's all good. We're all like, okay, sign me up for that. That's, that's wonderful. But I'm going to lose about half of you in the next point, right? Because here's the fine print. Spiritual friendship is incredibly costly and it requires a depth of vulnerability that few people have the courage to engage. It's costly and it requires vulnerability. I know we live in a moment where there's some really interesting thinkers and writers doing some great work about vulnerability. Some of Brene Brown's stuff around that is fascinating. We like to click the videos and read the books and check out the blogs. It's one thing to watch that. It's another thing to actually live a life of vulnerability. And here's what you see in this friendship between David and Jonathan. There's a cost, there's a cost, and there's a vulnerability both directions. Look what, look what Jonathan does in cost and vulnerability in verse three of chapter 18. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and he gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. All of the things that Jonathan freely gives to David are costly symbols of Jonathan's potential inheritance of the throne of Israel. The robe would have been a symbol of royalty. The only guys in all of Israel that had swords were just the king and the king's son. The belt would have been a symbol of authority. All of these things, down to the very armor he gives to David, are not only incredibly costly, but here's what's happening. He's giving David things that David could choose to hurt him with. He's given away something that's really precious and he's giving it to somebody in trust that that person will hold these precious gifts in a way that doesn't do damage to him down the road. Same thing happens to David. Jonathan asked David to make a covenant that he won't remove his steadfast love from Jonathan all the days of his life to not cut off his heirs from the planet. Now, I don't know how much history you know. You you don't have to be a history PhD to look at dynasties and know if there's a competing threat to the throne. If there's a rival family, dynasties take out the rival family. It may be through political violence. It may be overt violence. But listen, if you're a family and you're rising and there's a family that has a potential claim to the throne, you do whatever it takes to protect your future But here's what David does. It's fascinating. The cost to David to be friends with Jonathan is the vulnerability that as David loves Jonathan's offspring, as David creates a seat at his table for Jonathan's son down the road, we're going to read that later on. As David does that, he's making it possible to actually risk his own political stability and future out of love for Jonathan. Here's the point, man. Like, 
to be in deep community, communion with each other, deep relationship between a husband and a wife, between brothers and sisters in Christ, to have church be anything more than a silly crowd requires a deep cost. It's going to cost time. There's things you can't do if you're going to cultivate depth of relationship. It's going to cost It's going to cost a whole lot of effort to be in deep relationship. It's going to cost your rights. Like you can have spiritual friendships or you can always be right. You can't have both. Same thing could be true of marriage. You could have a good marriage or you can always be right. You can't have both. It costs you your rights. Laying down your rights. Bearing with one another. Hey, here's one that we hate as Americans. Spiritual friendship limits your freedom. You limit your options in spiritual friendship. You're actually saying, I'm going to do life with people. And instead of bouncing from church to church to church, every time I get frustrated or disappointed or hurt, there's a limitation to our friendships. We see this so clearly in marriage. To say yes to one woman is to say no to all other women. But the same thing is true when you really move beyond thinking that friendship is acquiring likes on Facebook or being prom king, prom queen, that you kind of wave at all 150 people you're acquainted with instead of knowing any of them, it costs you your freedom. It limits your options. It's going to cost tears. And listen, here's the harder thing. The vulnerability of deep spiritual friendship is you're going to risk rejection Like you can be the bubble boy and you can keep everybody away from your soul. You can play defense and you can let people know just enough of who you actually are to be seen as strong and witty. You can manage your image or you can actually let people in to who you really are, even the shadows of who you are. But as soon as you do that, you're giving them the power to see you and reject you. And some people will. You risk being deeply wounded. C.S. Lewis talked about if you love anything in this world, even a pet, you're going to have your heart broken. Nobody engages in real spiritual friendship, soul-level friendship, and gets out of all relationships unscathed. You just don't. You risk embarrassment. As long as you can just talk about your successes and your wins and how great you're doing and just occasionally unbutton your shirt and show your S on your chest. As long as you're living like that, like you don't have anything to be embarrassed about. But when you start processing your weakness, your struggle, your sin, your brokenness, which by the way, without that, you can't possibly really be friends with anybody because you're a caricature. You're not a real human. You risk, man, you risk the embarrassment of that. Talking about your past. So listen, in this relationship, there's this cost and there's this vulnerability that just kind of smells like Jesus. Because here's the thing, here's the thing. Jesus is the one that pays the ultimate cost and then engages in vulnerability to a degree that seems absurd to call us his friends. The cost to God for our friendship was the infinite cost of his son's death. 
And listen, there's never been vulnerability like the vulnerability of God. Certainly God is without limits, without beginning, without end, all-powerful, all-knowing. But listen, in the incarnation, the uncreated creator made himself breakable. The son of God takes on flesh to be hurt. He does this so that we can become his friends. Here's the reality. The last thought today is that spiritual friendship, as good as it is, as important as it is, as much of a priority as it should be for all followers of Jesus, it is limited and it points to the ultimate friend. It's limited and it points to the ultimate friend. Look what happens in chapter 20, verse 41. As soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times and they kissed one another and they wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord saying, the Lord shall be between me and you, between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. As beautiful as this friendship is, and I actually think when you read the whole story of David, I actually really believe that it's this friendship with Jonathan that God uses to keep David from becoming like Saul. He uses it to protect him, to deepen him, to keep his heart soft. He uses it to remind him of his calling and who he is. This friendship is profound for David. Yet listen, it's limited by the vengeance of Saul, sin, war, distance, David's only going to see his friend Jonathan one more time before Jonathan is killed in battle. Eventually, death itself is going to separate them as friends. The point being, this story is really honest that spiritual friendship is not an ideal that meets all of the needs of our soul. Spiritual friendship, even in its limitations, even when it ends, even when it's broken, even when it's incomplete, is God's way of flashing a huge red neon sign that says, I am the friend that sticks closer than a brother. I am the one, I am the one who tells you that a friend is born for the day of trouble. I am the one that invites you to be my friends, not just my servants. In this story, it's all about Jesus. See, listen, Jonathan points to us and David points to Jesus. What does Jonathan have to do to be friends with David? He has to give up all claims to the throne. What does it mean to become a friend with Jesus? It means you and me have to give up all claims to the throne. Jesus said, I no longer call you servants because you know what my father is doing. I call you friends if you do what I command you. Meaning our friendship with Jesus, as deep and beautiful and rich as it really is, is not a friendship between peers. It's a friendship between the king and his brothers and sisters that he's brought into the kingdom. And David points to Jesus. What does David have to give up to be friends with Jonathan? He has to give up his vengeance, his wrath against his enemies. Jesus forsakes all just retribution for those that become his friends that trust in him. The father erases our sin to make us his friends. So listen, spiritual friendship is real with human beings. 
We're going to talk about in just a second the lonely in the room, the cynical in the room, and the judgmental in the room. Wherever you're at, spiritual friendship is real. Jesus wants you to do life and relationship with people. But no matter how good those spiritual friendships are, their brokenness, their limitation, their failings, their sin, and their endings remind you that the friend you need more than any other friend is Jesus Christ, not to be a philosophy or an idea, but a resurrected friend that you walk with. You can, you can be really into Abraham Lincoln. You can read the Gettysburg Address. You can study his political theory. You can look at what he did for our country. You can respect him. You can admire him. You can be shaped by him. You can't be friends with him. Those of you that are like, I am friends with him. We have counseling in our church. We'll help you. You're not friends with him. He's dead. Jesus is alive. And prayer and reading the word and fellowship with each other and singing these songs and praying these prayers is not just religious stuff that we do. It's a way that we meet with Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit to hear the voice of our friend, to be comforted by our friend. Jesus loves you. He's nearer to you than any brother. So let me close with this. If you're lonely in the room, a lot of us are lonely. The very air that we breathe in this particular cultural moment is the air of loneliness and isolation. If you're lonely, there's two invitations in the gospel. Bring your loneliness to Jesus who knows what it's like to be cut off from everyone for your sake. You may feel lonely, but you are actually not alone. Jesus wants to hear you. He wants to walk with you. He wants to carry your tears. In this particular moment, even as we come to the table in a minute, you're coming to be with Jesus, your friend. In your loneliness, also come to the people of God. The church is imperfect. That's why I'm bald and have a gray beard at 41 years old. It's because the church is a hot mess. The bride of Jesus on this side of glory is not a looker. She will be. She ain't right now. She's a mess. She's a mess. But even in her imperfections, in her failings, in her sins, when she drops the ball on community, all of that, all of that is a part of the way that God reminds us all that we need him and the gospel. To the cynical those that are like, hey, I've tried this. It didn't work for me. I have scars. I have wounds. I'm disappointed. I've had friends that have left. I've gone from church to church and no one's really made room for me. Like, let me just say, if you're cynical today, when Jesus talks about turning the other cheek, I don't think he's trying to build a philosophy of pacifism in that text. When Jesus say, if you, says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the left to them, I think what he's actually doing is telling us about what it's going to cost to be in relationship. When you offer your face, which is a symbol of intimacy, when you show yourself at someone, will you see me? Will you look at me? Will you receive me? Can you be eye to eye with me? When you give someone your face and they slap you and you feel the shame of that and the rage of that, What Jesus is saying is turn the other cheek and set yourself up again to be disappointed because protecting yourself in relationship is not the way to become like Jesus or be more human. To love 
is to hurt in this life. And there's no way around that. But wouldn't you rather love than play it safe and be a lonely, bitter, cynical, grumpy old person who your great-grandbabies don't even want to be with? Because make no mistake, man, that'll be the cost if you don't keep putting your heart out. If you don't keep having faith, hope, and love be what defines the way that you give yourself to other people. And by the way, I'm not saying be foolish. I'm not saying share your darkest secrets with every stranger you meet. Be weird. Don't be a fool. But you've got to do life and relationship with people in God's church and you're going to get hurt. Don't become bitter. To the judgmental, right? And it's hard talking to the judgmental because the judgmental never know they're judgmental. So the, every judgmental person here is like, yeah, let them have it. All those judges. It's about to get, get those judges what they deserve. Like, no, dummy, you're the one I'm talking to. Like, here, here's what I mean by the judgmental. The judgmental have all of their frustration and their disappointment and their angst about the lack of community and the lack of friendship. It's always pointing out at others. They don't talk to me. They don't meet my needs enough. They're not present enough with me. And here's the problem with that. Maybe it's true. Maybe you have valid grievances. Maybe people have dropped the ball and let you down. But here's the problem with the judgmental posture. The only person on the face of the planet that you can affect change in is yourself. You can't change your spouse. You can't change your community group. You can't make everybody else do the right thing. Here's the crazy thing about having teenagers. You start to realize that you have very limited power to affect change in other people. You are responsible for you. And in this conversation around gospel community, it is so much more helpful instead of pointing at all the ways that other people are failing to be your friend or do church right or do church well. A better question is this. Jesus, like, hey, what's my invitation in this to grow and to deepen and to have a soul that's more open to relationship? So as we close this today, this meal that we're about to eat is, uh, it's called a lot of things in different traditions. It's called the Eucharist in a lot of traditions, which means meal of Thanksgiving. It's called the Lord's Supper. It's an ordinance that Jesus gave us. But one of my favorite names for this meal is communion. Communion is about soul-to-soul friendship. Koinonia is the Greek word. Communion is a meal that we receive where God actually comes to us through the power of the Holy Spirit in this meal to deepen his friendship with us, to open us to God more, to bring Jesus more deeply into our lives. We need Jesus. We need to walk with him and be friends with him. In this meal, <coughs> you're invited to deepening your friendship with Jesus, to repent where you've not kept his commands because you're not equals. He's the king, we're not. We've all broke his commands this week. So we repent and we come to him to receive fresh help and fresh grace. But listen, this is also a meal of communion with other people. You can't receive the Lord's Supper in online church. You can't receive the Lord's Supper in a podcast. You can't receive the Lord's Supper by yourself alone in your prayer closet. 
this is a meal that reminds you that just as there was a lot of individual grains that all got ground up to be baked together to form one loaf, and just as there were hundreds, if not thousands of grapes that were crushed to make that wine that become one cup, we together, who were far from God and far from each other, have been brought together through the finished work of Jesus. Not to be an ideal community with no sin, no failings, no broken relationships, but to be a repenting community, even in our frailty, that stand together shoulder to shoulder as brothers and sisters.